Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. Just a quick announcement before we start. You know that Crypto Weekend Retreat I've been promoting for a while now? Well, Meltem and Jalik and I are canceling it. You're thinking, what? I've already signed up or I was planning to go and oh my god, she's been promoting it for months now. But yeah, I'm also neck deep in book stuff and have been working weekends and realized I really could use that weekend, especially since I probably will be doing a reporting trip right after uh, that scheduled retreat. So sorry. Pretty much my whole life is the book and the podcast, and it's going to be like that for a little while longer. That said, we have a great show for you today, so enjoy, and I hope you go and do some yoga anyway. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I have another crypto podcast called Unconfirmed. It's shorter, newsier, and comes out Fridays. If you haven't taken a listen, go check it out. Also, I publish a newsletter on the top stories in crypto every week. To sign up, go to unchainedpodcast.com and you can enter your email address right on the homepage. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulations and to monitor compliance. Grow your crypto and earn up to 8% per year with Crypto.com. It's the place to buy over 40 coins at true cost with no fees and no markups. Download the Crypto.com app today. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. My guests for today are Dong He, Deputy Director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department of the IMF, and Yen Liu, Assistant General Counsel at the Legal Department of the IMF. Welcome, Dong and Yen. Thank Hi, you, Laura. Laura. Thank you. Let's start with a basic question. What does the IMF do? Oh, okay. So that's, um, that's an easy one, I think. The IMF International Monetary Fund is basically a multinational organization. Uh, we are a member-based organization. We have 189 members consisting of government, governments of the countries. Uh, we promote international financial money and monetary stability. Uh, so that's basically uh, the function of the IMF. We were founded in 1944, so we are going to celebrate the 75th anniversary this year, actually, as part of the Bretton Woods system. And there's one thing I want to add, which is before the show, Dong and Yen explained to me that the views expressed during this interview are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the IMF. So if part of the mission of the IMF is to ensure the stability of the international monetary system. 
How has the advent of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies affected the IMF's activities thus far? Well, uh, you know, this is an exciting time. We are seeing a lot of uh, changes in the technological space. Uh, I wouldn't say it has changed our work so far, but you know, we are interested in understanding uh, what these technologies are, the implications for the uh, financial systems in our, in our member countries, and eventually how that's going to affect the international monetary landscape. Uh, so I think uh, this is just the beginning, and uh, we are still in the learning mode, so we are very interested in the issues that are going to that are going to shape the financial systems across the globe. I just want to add, since many of our countries, member countries, are very interested in this issue, and we are, you know, um, obligated in a sense to really understand the implications, so that we can provide policy advice and technical assistance to our member countries in this area. Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask a little bit more about that, Yen, because um, the main ways in which uh, the IMF works with the member countries, I believe, is uh, through the central banks. And so let's, before we get even more into blockchain technologies and digital currencies, can you just explain what the main ways are in which central banks can influence the economies of their countries? I think, well, it's true that our counterparts are central banks. Um, but in terms of our mandate, we look beyond just what central bank, you know, banks do. We also look at our country's, you know, overall economic policies and also their financial sector policies to make sure that, you know, um, overall the uh, global international system or, you know, global financial stability will be uh, maintained. So we, we are engaging with central banks and other entities within the country through our normal surveillance activities, which is usually take the forms of an annual uh, health checkup. We call it Article 4 consultations. Um, also, we have other instruments like a financial sector assessment programs. We also provide financing to our country. Through the adjustment programs and our lending, we also engage with central banks and other agencies in the country. And finally, um, we provide, as I mentioned before, technical assistance to help central banks strengthen their institutional uh, uh, frameworks and also uh, guide them um, in terms of the international best practices and also on the policy matters. So, uh, Laura, I guess your question is also about how central banks affect their own economies, right? That's the, yeah. the question you have. I see. So, so basically, central banks the institution, the government institution in a particular economy that issues the currency of that country, right? So when we talk about the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, the dollar cash notes we carry around are issued by the Federal Reserve as the central bank of the United States. So that's uh, the very basic function of the central bank. Of course, the central bank runs monetary policy, and monetary policy affects the stability of the U.S. dollar as a unit of account. All the economic activities here in the U.S. Uh, you know, are denominated in dollars, and that, that dollar unit of account is really uh, defined by by the Federal Reserve as the central bank. Does that answer your question? 
Yeah, yeah. And I also wanted to talk about uh, some of the mechanisms that they use. Um, like, for instance, commercial banks, as far as I understand, at least in the U.S., are pretty central to the way the Federal Reserve manages the money supply here. And I wanted to know if that was the case for all central banks that, you know, in those countries, commercial banks also play a key role. Yes, indeed. So the central bank in all countries are basically the bank of the commercial banks. So we have a modern banking system. So we have this two-tier structure, right? The commercial banks uh, provide deposits uh, which are redeemable at par with the central bank liability one-to-one. And the central bank is at the pinnacle of this pyramid, you could say. So the central bank is the bank of the commercial banks. And, you know, there are various ways for the central bank to influence either the price or the quantities of money in the particular economy. Uh, so that's, uh, that's basically how, how the system is set up. So let's, and again, you know, the topic for today is central bank digital currencies, but I feel like it's kind of useful to talk about some existing types of money. So let's talk about cash uh, for a little bit, what role does cash mm-hmm. play in a central bank's ability to manage its economy? So um, cash is one component of uh, what we call uh, uh, base money of a particular economy. So the base money is the liability of the central bank. It has two components. One is cash. The other one is reserves kept by commercial banks. As I said earlier, commercial banks also issue liabilities in the form of deposits, right? You and I keep our deposits with commercial banks. And these deposits are part of the broader monetary system. So these are, these are also money, but these are commercial bank money. It's not central bank money. So central bank money uh, is composed of two components. One is cash, the other one is commercial bank reserves. And a commercial bank money uh, is in the form of deposits that the public keep with them. And these are redeemable one-to-one. This commercial bank money is uh, at par with central bank liability. That's the unit of account, basically. One dollar is one dollar. So you can can convert your one dollar deposit in a commercial bank to a one dollar cash uh, provided by the Federal Reserve. So cash is becoming less used uh, kind of broadly. And, you know, this is kind of maybe a function of everything becoming more digital. So what is the role for cash or some kind of cash-like form of money in the digital age? Right. That's a very good question. So uh, globally, we have seen... uh, very fast uh, digitalization, digitization of payments in some economies, but it's not necessarily at the same pace. In some economies, people still use a lot of cash, like in Japan. Uh, But in Sweden, you know, cash use has really declined very fast. And looking forward, I think the digital age, uh, the demand for cash uh, is likely to decline. Now, cash has certain advantages. Let me give you an example. When you buy a cup of coffee uh, in Starbucks, let's say, you can, you can pay uh, with cash. You just pass uh, a $5 bill to the cashier. And that transaction is very uh, efficient in the sense that it's settled 
it's cleared and settled instantaneously. And also there is a feature that the cashier doesn't have to know who you are. She, he, he or she doesn't have to know the bias, Laura Sheen. And you don't have to know who the, the uh, cashier is. But the other way to pay for coffee is uh, to swipe your credit card. Uh, now, that is a very different payment instrument because, you know, for that transaction to be settled finally in the sense that for uh, your ba- bank balance to be debited and for the, for the Starbucks uh, uh, account to be credited, it has to be backed by a whole infrastructure. So there are banks involved. And it takes some time for that transaction to be set up. Uh, so, so there are various ways uh, to make payments. Uh, so there are uh, you know, different features attached to each uh, payment instrument. Now, um, cash also has its disadvantage. If we are in different places, like uh, you are in, the, uh, let's say, traveling uh, in Peru, I'm here in the United States. It's very hard for us to give cash to each other. To you know, uh, so you have to make payments uh, remotely, and then cash is not not very convenient. Then uh, you know, bank transfers, credit cards would would be much more convenient. So these different instruments have uh, have own their own features. Uh, you could say uh, strengths and weaknesses depends on the, the on on the use. Uh, uh, of uh, you know what what sort of transactions we are we are conducting. So let's talk about central bank digital currency. You know I've been seeing the IMF has been talking about this and releasing some reports and articles. But let's define that. What what do you really mean when you're talking about central bank digital currency? So central bank digital currency is basically a digital version of um, central bank liability, which is widely accessible. As I explained earlier, the only widely accessible part of the central bank money at the moment is cash, right? And, you know, the other part is commercial bank reserves kept by commercial banks. So when we think about creating a central bank digital currency, um, you and I will be able to hold uh, uh, that central bank money uh, digitally, for example, uh, in our iPhone, uh, it's, so it's it's more like digital cash. It's really like digital cash. At the moment, when we think about the cash, that's the only way that you know the public um, uh, can hold central bank money. Uh, so if we have a central bank digital currency, then we can also hold central bank money digital form, in addition to, or instead of holding cash. So that's, uh, that's one, one way to think about this. And is that created using blockchain technology or, is, or can it be created with any other type of technology? It doesn't have to be blockchain uh, technology. I think this idea itself is technology neutral. Uh, so you can have a, a more centralized way of doing this. For example, the central bank itself is, is, uh, you know, is the issuer. Uh, so, um, in contrast to Bitcoin, for example, when new coins are, are mined or minted, it's a decentralized process on the, on the blockchain. Central bank digital currency doesn't have to be uh, uh, on a decentralized blockchain. It can be issued. Uh, actually, it's, it's probably, uh, at this stage, it makes more sense for the central bank to centrally control the issuance 
of uh, the central bank digital currency. And at this point, why is the IMF interested in central bank digital currencies? And what level of interest are you seeing from your member countries? Um, that's a very good question, because as I uh, said, the central, bank, uh, the central banks are uh, in charge of um, maintaining price stability uh, in, 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 in modern economies. So they are interested, and of course the IMF is also interested in ensuring price stability. Uh, so if uh, in the digital age, if private uh, digital currencies are developed, if there's less demand, uh, uh, for central bank digital currency, for central bank currency, for example, if there, if cash use, uh, is, uh, is, uh, if cash is no longer used for economic transactions, um, then, you know, it's, this, the public will, uh, have no interface or no interactions with the central bank. The central bank will also have more, uh, uh difficulty in influencing, uh, monetary conditions in the economy. In the sense that, particularly in the case that if there are alternative private currencies that are uh, developed in the different unit of account, so that would make the central bank's uh, job of maintaining price stability in the countries much more difficult. Uh, so we think that you know it's important for the central bank to be engaged, uh, to stay in the game in the digital age, um, and that would help the central bank achieve their mandate of maintaining. Uh, price stability, uh, even in the digital age. Yeah, to answer your second question, several central banks in both advanced and emerging markets and developing uh, countries are considering the pros and cons of issuing um, the CBDC. For instance, Australia, Brazil, China, Denmark, Philippines, just to give you um, a few uh, uh, examples. And they are really looking very carefully at you know, uh, whether it makes sense to issue CBDC. So I think this is really a topic that um, really raised a lot of awareness and also, you know, interest among the membership. So earlier we talked about how the central bank is kind of the top of the pyramid. It's sort of this lender of last resort. And then they work with the commercial banks to influence the economy um, to increase or decrease the monetary supply. So when you introduce a central bank digital currency, how does that process change? Um, you mean how does, how does the money supply process change? Yeah. I see. Uh, it doesn't alter that mechanism fundamentally. It's just another uh, form of central bank uh, um, uh, liabilities. So, oh, but, you know, we are still so, doing research. Yes. Well, I thought that um, there was some thinking that it could potentially sort of reduce the role for commercial banks. And, you know, people could kind of just have accounts directly with the central bank. So in that sense... I see. Then, I see your question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a very good uh, question. I think that depends on the design uh, of um, uh, the central bank digital currency. Uh, and, you know, basically we can talk about two, uh, you know, conceptually speaking, we can talk about two types of central bank digital currency. One is 
a, a value based or token based is uh, a bit like an object right when you uh, like a, 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 a token uh, cash is is such a, um, a type in the sense that what matters uh, is the value or the authenticity uh, of of the dollar bill or the object itself. Another one is in the so-called account-based or claim-based uh, uh, um, uh, money, like our bank account, our deposits. Uh, so if you design uh, the central bank digital currency more like cash, it's like digital cash, and then that doesn't affect um, the demand for deposits as much. On the other hand, if you design the central bank digital currency more like a substitute, uh, for uh, commercial bank deposits, uh, uh, that would probably affect how we um, value uh, commercial bank deposits. So some of us might move uh, our deposits to, to the central bank if we feel uh, that it's much safer to keep deposits directly with, with the, with the uh, central bank. But of course, there are different considerations. Why is that? whether you pay interest on this deposit. So if, you, if there's no interest, uh, then you wouldn't want to give up the interest you earn on a commercial bank deposit. Uh, the other thing is that if, if, it's, uh, uh, if there's deposit insurance, uh, then you wouldn't worry about the credit risks or you wouldn't worry about losing uh, that deposit with the commercial bank. Uh, uh, so you don't necessarily forego the interest you earn uh, uh, and move the deposit to the central bank. Uh, so, th- so, you know, this, these, are, uh, these are the options or design features uh, we have to bear in mind when we design the central bank digital currency. Uh, so it's not a, a uniform impact talking about. And we talked about how there are different designs, um, et cetera, for... Uh, the ways these central bank digital currencies might be issued. And I was wondering, uh, are central banks already structured in a way where they can, they can issue central bank digital currencies? Like do existing central bank laws allow for that? Or are there other um, considerations that need to happen before such currencies could be issued? Yeah, I think it really depends on uh, whether it is within the central bank's mandate to uh, issue um, the uh, digital currency and also whether they are allowed to do so under their existing central banking law. So maybe I just take one step back to explain what is um, a mandate and why it's so important. You know, for a central bank, uh, its mandate is the reason why it exists. And basically, a central bank is established for certain uh, purposes and also um, to uh, discharge certain responsibilities. And this purpose and responsibilities are usually explicitly set forth in um, the uh, central banking law. And in some countries, as a matter of fact, this could be uh, enshrined in their constitutional law. So um, central banks are really, in a way, limited in what they can do based on the, uh, the specified responsibilities and mandates. And different cent- central banks have different central banking laws and but there are a few general principles which don't already explain. For instance, they can issue um, a currency, right? They can really set up accounts. But under the existing central banking law, generally speaking, um, the, the currency, when they meant currency, they really mean banknotes and cash. 
so um, the digital currency was not considered at the time when the uh, existing central banking law was designed. So in many, many countries, we haven't really looked at all the uh, countries' central banking law, but I think, generally speaking, um, the central banks do need to amend or modify their central bank laws in order to provide a very clear and certain legal basis for issuing um, the uh, digital currency. I also want, I I read a, a speech that Christine Lagarde, the, I guess, I, I don't know if she's still currently the managing director of the IMF, but she's at least the outgoing, if, if, if not former managing director of the IMF. And she talked about how central bank digital currency could help bring about greater financial inclusion. Can you describe how that works? Right. So, for example, at the moment, uh, we still have more than a billion people in the world who are unbanked in the sense that they don't have a, a bank account. So if you want to have a, a deposit held with a commercial bank to use that uh, you know, uh, for payments, you need to be banked. <laughs> you need to have, you need to have uh, an account with the bank. But the cash, you know, uh, cash is, is an instrument that does not require a bank account. So, in the, a lot of the unbanked people in in the uh, in the world, um, you know, they they uh, hold cash, but it's very expensive, right? It's also um, uh, uh, difficult to store. It's there are, you know, it, you can easily lose it. It's also very expensive for countries. They have to spend a lot of uh, money maintaining uh, the. Uh, 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 hygiene of the cash notes, uh, you know, to um, replace them once in a while, to distribute them, to secure the, the storage. So it's a very expensive um, uh, uh, means uh, of holding the currency. Now, digital cash uh, will make it uh, much easier for these people uh, to to uh, uh, to have access to a means of payments. Uh, you know, in Africa. And a lot of the unbanked people, they can keep their cash in the in the mobile account, uh, and uh, you know that's uh, so. It does not necessarily require a bank account. You can you can uh, uh, get uh, those digital cash, uh, you know, through the mobile phone companies, uh, through post offices. Uh, so that would help these people uh, make economic uh, transactions. Uh, now, in the uh, in the future, uh, if these services, uh, payment services, can be linked with other uh, type of services through the uh, the uh, mobile apps, uh, then they can be incentivized uh, to save, uh, to um, uh, you know invest, and uh, that will enhance economic efficiency uh, tremendously. I think that's one way to think about it. But I think at the same time, we should also bear in mind that this type of, uh, you know, virtual uh, currency or digital currencies could raise some financial integrity concerns. So it's quite important to uh, really strike a proper balance, you know, right, between, you know, the reaping the benefits to support financial inclusion and the need to safeguard the financial integrity to make sure that they will not be abused by the criminals. Um, I think that's really uh, a very important consideration for policymakers when they are uh, designing the uh, the CBDC. In a way, one way to think about it is that 
you know, these days when we, you know, when central banks issue cash, the denominations are not necessarily huge, right? You can you cannot have a U.S. dollar that's you know that's denominated more than uh, five hundred dollars. Let's say the largest denomination is one hundred dollars. So one consideration when central banks design the denominations of cash notes is that they don't want to create too much convenience for uh, illicit uh, use of of cash notes. So when you move to the digital world, when you have digital cash, you have to think what is the amount of anonymity uh, that should be allowed uh, in the in the use of the of the digital tokens or digital cash. Um, so that you need to strike a balance, but there are also ways, technological ways, uh, to track the usage. Uh, of of uh, digital cash to ensure uh, that you know, financial integrity is not compromised. So that's uh, yeah, another way. So I think, yeah, when I refer to financial integrity, I really mean the uh, money laundering and terrorist financing risks, how to really manage these risks in order to um, really safeguard the, uh, the uh, financial system while at the same time really allowing more access you know, um, to the financial services by millions of people. And how do you do that without it being like a totally uh, surveilled system? How, like, how do you manage, you know, privacy against those concerns? Yeah, I think that is a very good question. I think that's what Don was saying, that there are no panacea right now. But I think, you know, it's important to really strike this balance and using the technology as, as a Don't are saying that, you know, you probably can impose some strict limits on the size of the transaction, and you can also um, use the technology to facilitate effective identity authentication and also tracking of the payments and transfer. Um, This technology can really help um, either central bank or um, any source entities to ensure that... um, the AML CFT measures are compliant because that's really the the, uh, the requirements that each institution, like central bank, needs to comply with. Um, but I do think that all these measures, um, I think they can be helpful, but they really need some further evaluation to really make sure they're effective to address these concerns. We're going to keep discussing this in a moment uh, because actually Christine Lagarde actually wrote or, or gave a speech where she outlined a scenario like this. So I'll talk about that in a moment. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great. With with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. When buying crypto, price matters. With the crypto.com app, You can buy more than 40 coins at true cost. Our multi-exchange trading engine ensures the lowest possible prices to buy crypto with no fees or markups. 
Not only is the app good for buying crypto, it's also good for growing crypto. You can earn up to 8% per year on BTC, ETH, XRP, and more when you make a deposit into the one month, three month, or flexible terms. You just have to deposit your crypto to begin. Interests are paid out weekly and immediately available for use. Start earning through the Crypto.com app. Available on the App Store and Google Play. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Yen Liu and Dong He of the IMF. So the speech that I referenced earlier in which Christine Lagarde sort of outlined a scenario in which the concerns of privacy versus, you know, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing could be balanced was she said that central bank, central banks could design digital currency in a way where users' identities would be authenticated through customer due diligence procedures. So I'm not sure. And then she, and transactions recorded. So I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. So maybe you can describe that uh, in a second, but let me keep going. And then she said, however, identities would not be disclosed to third parties or governments unless required by law. So she had this example where let's say that somehow credit score companies or, or, you know, other companies figure out that if you're the kind of person who purchases frozen pizza and beer, then you um, maybe are a higher risk, uh, a higher risk borrower or something like that. So she would say, so if you do go to the grocery and purchase a frozen pizza and beer, then the supermarket, the bank and marketers wouldn't have a way of knowing who you were, or, you know, wouldn't maybe know what you bought. But at the same time, anti-money laundering and terrorist financial controls could run in the background. And then if there was any suspicion about you or your transaction, then there there would be this veil of anonymity that could be lifted. So can you just describe how that works? Like, I, I you know, I understand the words that she was using, but it just like on a detailed level, like, how how does you know what what are all the different actors that need to be set up in place and what are the processes you know to to make this possible okay so um basically um the uh, uh, financial uh, action task force uh, which is an international standard setter they um uh, set the uh, um the uh, anti laundering and terrorist financing uh standard you know for um all countries I think one key requirement is called customer due diligence, which basically require, uh, for example, the one you're talking about, the commercial banks and other entities that are involved in the uh, transaction uh, with uh, either cash or with credit card, they will basically uh, set up a very robust 
monitoring system to see some suspicious transaction. In your example, if somebody uh, engaged in a transaction using, um, for instance, you know, a drug proceeds, and if they have a proper system set in place, they can trace the uh, the proceeds are used, you know, in this transaction. They have an obligation not only to monitor that transaction, but also report that suspicious transaction to a relevant authorities. And that authorities will take certain action that may be do further analysis, and they will uh, take further actions to trace the proceeds. And to the extent, you know, um, the proceeds um, are really identified um, as coming from a suspicious source, and they could suspend the transaction that can also, you know, um, take other actions, for instance, impose certain sanctions on the, uh, the entities like commercial banks. So this whole um, sort of the, uh, the process, you know, in a very simple word, basically saying commercial banks were, you know, um, the other entities, you need to ask questions. You need to really ask the person who gives you the cash, you know, where the cash comes from. And is that from a legitimate source or is from an illegitimate source? And then based on that answer provided by the, uh, the commercial bank, um, the authorities can take certain actions. So that's sort of the normal um, customer due diligence requirement. When we talk about uh, cash, it's very difficult um, to really trace, as don't mentioned, because of the anonymity. I think when you use um, the um, mobile money and you use, uh, for instance, the central bank you know, digital currency, to the extent you use certain technology like this distributed ledger, you're able to record the whole transaction and you're sort of getting a better understanding of the, uh, um, where the money is coming from that really can help you um, in terms of investigating, monitoring, and also reporting the cases. Uh, having said that, I do think that, um, as I mentioned before, this technology is Still need to be evaluated because ultimately we need to know the um, the beneficial owner of the money, meaning the ultimate owner of the uh, of the money that get into the uh, the transaction. And distributed ledger may not necessarily help you really identify the ultimate owner of particular fund or particular you know um, uh, you know credit or, or money. So that's something we still have to look at. But I do think that technology offers some promises in terms of, you know, um, uh, uh, facilitating the uh, monitoring, investigation, and reporting by the uh, commercial banks and other entities involved in the transaction. So, so Laura, just to supplement um, what uh, what Yang has said, I think in a way technology is. Um, going to give us more options to think about these issues or to strike a better balance because, you know, as, as cash is completely anonymous, then that creates a lot of difficulties for uh, law enforcement. On the other hand, in the digital world, you don't want to be totally transparent either, right? Privacy is something that we value. Uh, so, you know, what Christine Lagarde mentioned is that you don't want want to have a necessarily customer uh, profiling because if people can tell you tell that you are buying certain products you are a type of person then you know your um, the prices they offer you the type of products they offer you would be somehow dependent on that type of profile that's not necessarily uh, ideal so in the digital age you don't necessarily you don't necessarily want to have everything 
uh, that's visible, that's transparent. So we still value privacy. Uh, so technology actually offers the potential for us to customize uh, different degrees of privacy. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a centralized database that has everything. You can review, review your entitlements uh, for certain things. For example, if you walk into a wine store, uh, you just need to prove that you are over 18 years old or 21 years old. And the store still doesn't have to know your name every time when you make a payment. So these are all the technologies uh, that are going to be uh, possible uh, in the digital world. So it's only that as a matter of public policy, we need to strike a balance uh, uh, at which circumstances uh, we, want to, we want to know who is behind the transaction uh, more than in other types of situations. So I think technology is really uh, very exciting because it allows us to, to have uh, this kind of flexibility. I just want to add that even under the current AML-CFT standard, um, this flexibility is already provided there because we are uh, applying a risk-based approach. So basically, you need to really uh, design the uh, AML-CFT measures based on the level of risks. So in uh, Don's example, if you go to a store, you just pay $50 to buy uh, wine, you know, the level of risk is not that high compared to you use $500,000 to buy a piece of real estate, right? So the standard really allows the countries to tailor their AML-CFT measures, like the customer due diligence requirements, um, to the level of risk. So in some situations, you should ask the risk and some you know, scenarios, you don't really need to ask questions. So I think, you know, combined with the technology and combined with the risk-based approach, um, I think we should be able to design a very balanced approach that address, you know, um, the, uh, the issue of privacy and also financial integrity concerns. And just so I understand uh, from what you were describing earlier, essentially uh, there will be Transactions that are more similar to cash that happen digitally, meaning that um, I could meet somebody and for whatever reason, this person and I, uh, you know, maybe I send them money or or they send me money. And then um, and that would be very similar to if we met in person and I handed them a $20 bill and the, or they handed me one. But then when you were saying that there would also be customer due diligence maybe like a, a transaction or two away from that transaction, I might be interacting with someone where they would know who I am, like a bank or, you know, some other uh, kind of institution. And then so if for whatever reason there was ever suspicion about what I was doing, then you could maybe kind of reconstruct who else I was transacting with for any transactions where it wasn't with an institution that knows who I am. Is that kind of what you were describing earlier? Uh, yes, very close. I think basically, as you're saying, that if you transact with somebody, um, for, for instance, if you transfer um, $50,000 to your relative in another country, I think that, you know, the bank, depending on their uh, limit, you know, uh, under their policy, 
they may ask you to fill out a form, right? So they will ask you, what is the purpose of the transfer? And maybe they even ask you where you get the money. And so you submit this form to the bank and the bank, based on their internal control system, they will verify, um, you know, the, your responses and what, to the extent they're satisfied, you know, uh, with the accuracy or the uh, uh, sufficiency of your information, they will make the transfer. But to the extent they are not, they may either ask you for more information or they will uh, not really make the transfer. So that's really sort of the, um, the normal procedure for customer due diligence. And let's also now then talk a little bit about the other area of money that has been burgeoning, I guess is the word, which is crypto assets. And Dong, you wrote a really fascinating article on how crypto assets could one day reduce the demand for central bank money. And the way you started the article, you kind of describe some of the general benefits of crypto assets over central bank money. Can you describe what you think those advantages are? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, there are different types of payment instruments, right? You know, cash uh, versus bank deposit. Uh, and, you know, depending on the characteristics of this particular payment instrument, uh, the information requirement is very different. Uh, so potentially, cryptocurrencies can make it very efficient for payments uh, to take place in uh, different locations. For example, we have had a lot of pain points in cross-border payments. You know that it's very expensive, it's slow, it's non-transparent. Once you send remittances, you don't know where they are. It's uh, very difficult to trace. Uh, So some of the uh, uh, payment services based on cryptocurrencies can make this process very efficient. It takes seconds or minutes uh, for the remittances or cross-border payments to to, to happen. Uh, Now, at the moment, of course, we know that cryptocurrencies are uh, cri- cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile. Uh, so this is where really the advantage of central bank money uh, has, in the sense that you know modern central bank monetary policy is based on the economic science. So central bankers, uh, for example, the monetary policy committee members, they make monetary policy by looking at how the economy functions. They look at various uh, shocks that are hitting the economy, like trade wars, you know, um, maybe even earthquakes. So they see how the economy might be hit by these shocks, and they respond uh, by changing monetary policy stance, like lowering interest rate, or if inflationary pressures are going up, they can tighten monetary policy. So you have a forward-looking monetary policy making that uh, that allows central banks to maintain the stability of the uh, of the unit of account of the currency and that's uh, you know where the cryptocurrencies uh, have not uh, been able to do uh, they have uh, you know the value uh, of these cryptocurrencies fluctuates very widely uh, and they do not provide the stability uh, that uh, a currency really needs for uh, economic transactions to happen very efficiently um, and uh, so that's uh, that's really um, uh, important uh, because for modern economies to uh, to function properly, we need to have price stability. But on the other hand, 
uh, as a means of payment, you know, cryptocurrencies have some of the features that are very easy. They are very connected with the digital lives, uh, particularly of young people, right? You can on social platforms uh, or apps on your phones, you can, you can use these currencies very easily. So that's why I said early in the beginning that, you know, central banks, they need to stay in the game. They also need to make their currencies very easy to use uh, for, uh, you know, in the digital age. That's, that, you know, central bank digital currency is one, one way to, to make that happen. And another part of the article that I found really interesting was you said that if people adopted crypto assets, that could prompt a shift from credit money to commodity money. What does that mean exactly? So uh, <laughs> modern uh, monetary system was banking system. You know, money is created by uncredited relationships, right? So uh, um, uh, central bank money is, uh, is uh, uh, the, for example, cash is a liability. Uh, of the central bank or commercial bank deposit is uh, a liability of, of the commercial bank. Uh, these are based on uh, claims or credit relationships. Whereas commodity money is not liability of any anybody. Uh, gold, for example, is a uh, commodity money. Uh, it's, it's not. It's no longer really uh, serves any monetary function. But you know, traditionally, in the gold, for example, in the old age. Uh, in the gold standard, uh, you know, gold was used as as uh, as uh, as a currency, but it's not. It was not the liability of anybody. Now, if you think about what um, you know, cryptocurrencies like the Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not liability of anybody. So that's a type of commodity money. Uh, if if that's you know if it serves uh, some monetary function, um, so you could envisage. In the future, there will be multiple private cryptocurrencies or commodity monies being created, uh, and they could uh, um, be denominated in different unit of accounts. So that's not necessarily a desirable situation uh, because, you know, money is really a very important uh, uh, utility that the government should provide uh, uh, to ensure that the economy functions uh, very well, uh, we need to have price stability. So if you have a lot of uh, currencies competing, uh, and also in payment eco economics, we have the so-called economies of scale. So you may end up with a couple of private uh, cryptocurrencies uh, uh, dominating the, the, the payment uh, landscape, and they behave uh, as a monopolies. Uh, so you don't, that's not necessarily a very ideal situation. Uh, so we need to have a central bank uh, that's the monopoly issuer of uh, the legal tender or the fiat currency, and uh, that can maintain uh, price stability, which is really uh, for the benefit of, uh, of the whole of the economy. And one other piece of this that I wanted to ask about was you mentioned that if crypto assets become more widely adopted and, you know, the scenario that you, you just outlined, um, that could cause central bank money to no longer be the main unit of account. And then you said that that could make central bank monetary policy irrelevant and a good a good analogy is dollarization in developing economies. So can you describe what happens there when a developing economy does undergo dollarization and how you think that would play out if crypto assets became more dominant? 
So if in a, in a country that's highly dollarized, it's not only that uh, citizens hold a lot of their deposits in dollars, they also denominate their transactions in dollars. So instead of, uh, uh, you know, um, paying wages uh, or uh, uh, paying wages in, in local currency or uh, the, the prices uh, are quoted in local currency, if you have a big chunk of the economy, like 30%, uh, that, you know, the, the prices are actually denominated in U.S. dollars. So even if it's not the United States, you would still buy pizza uh, for $2 instead of, let's say, uh, uh, you know, 100 local currency units, uh, then, of course, then it's very hard for the central bank of that particular country to influence uh, the um, uh, inflation level uh, or to, to ensure price stability uh, of that country because a lot of economic activities are outside the scope of their influence. Uh, they, were, they, they are now denominated in, in a foreign currency. So you can imagine that if a lot of the economic activities are instead of uh, um, denominated uh, in the fiat currency, uh, they are denominated in, in cryptocurrencies, then it's very hard for the public authority like the central bank uh, to ensure uh, uh, price stability in that economy. So that's, uh, that's really what I, I meant earlier. And so do you think that that's what governments should try to do, to try to kind of, I don't know if prevent is the word, but stall uh, the adoption of crypto assets like, is there, I'm sure most of my audience probably would love to see more adoption. So I'm just curious, is this something where for the IMF and the different central banks that for them, it's, it would be definitely, you know, something that they should try to prevent? So it really depends on the, the specific country circumstances. You know, I think across the IMF membership, we have seen country authorities are reacting differently, right? Some countries have banned uh, the use or development of cryptocurrencies. Others, uh, you know, have legal systems uh, or laws that allow them to, uh, to, uh, to be developed. But, you know, you want to have other regulation to ensure, uh, for example, financial integrity is not compromised. You know, they should pay taxes. You know, that's, these are some of the basic requirements uh, that would um, uh, would uh, uh, pre- ensure, let's say, a level playing field. I mean, I think the basic premise here is really that a currency, a fiat currency that's properly managed, uh, that has monetary policy that's based on economic science, that is really for the best of, uh, for the good of the majority of the population, right? That's something desirable, as I mentioned earlier, um, that, uh, you know, Economists cannot uh, be left alone without monetary policy because we know that, you know, in the market economy, if you don't have a public authority like the central bank who manages uh, uh, either the price or the quantities of money, then the economies tend to fluctuate a lot. You have, you have financial stability problems, you have business cycle fluctuations that are very large. So that's not necessarily, uh, you know, welfare improving. So, uh, so the basic premise is really public policy has a role to play uh, to ensure price stability so the economy 
that doesn't fluctuate so wildly, or financial stability uh, is insured. So that, that's why we need a central bank. And what about for that goal of financial inclusion? Because I know a lot of people in the crypto space are one of their missions uh, with the work that they do is to promote financial inclusion. And, you know, they are quite well aware that there's a large segment of the world's population that isn't, uh, that doesn't make a good, they, they don't make good candidates for customers. Like they're, they're basically not who, you know, the, the types of people that banks could make money from. Um, and so I know that, for instance, some of the charitable efforts are around giving people direct access to cryptocurrencies that they can then convert into their local currency. So in that way, do you see cryptocurrencies helping to achieve some of the IMF's goals around financial inclusion or, or any of the other ones? In a way, I mean, the reason why we are thinking that central bank digital currency can help financial inclusion is precisely to play, you know, you know, to play that role, right? If we have a digital version of, of cash that's easily obtainable, uh, not necessarily through a bank because these people are not banked, then that would, uh, that could help foster financial inclusion. But I guess what we're saying is that absolutely we think it can help with the financial inclusion, which is a very important, you know, uh, uh, mandate for the for the fund. But at the same time, we do caution the countries that, you know, when we really design the uh, central bank digital currency, we need to also be careful um, with respect to a couple of issues that don't mention. For example, they have to have legal basis. Um, clear and certain legal basis, they need to have a proper measures put in place to ensure the financial integrity concerns or risks would be mitigated. So I think they kind of go hand in hand. And I also wanted to ask about Libra in this regard. This is Facebook's proposed digital currency. Are you seeing that that's spurring any interest among the central banks to issue their own central bank digital currency? Like they see that as competition and you know, it's making them realize they need to step up their game? So our acting managing director, David Lipton, has recently uh, written an article in the Financial Times. And, and our colleagues uh, uh, have also published a new paper. It's entitled The Rise of Digital Money. So these issues are all being analyzed here in the fund. Uh, I think given really the, the uh, scale uh, of the proposed um, uh, uh, cryptocurrency Libra uh, by Facebook and the Libra con- uh, sort of consortium, you know, this, this is a whole different ball game because it's it's a it's a very large uh, uh, enterprise. Uh, you know, Facebook has more than a billion uh, users. Uh, so it's, even though it's a well, yeah, more than two billion. So that's this is of systemic importance in the sense that it's going to affect uh, how the global payment system uh, works. Uh, so we need to ensure that um, uh, it's properly regulated. Uh, the financial risks uh, are, are, are properly managed. For example, uh, uh, you know whether these are redeemable. Uh, at uh, you know real time in real time uh, to the currencies that back uh, the Libra uh, unit. So uh, some of these issues are not uh, the details are not yet uh, disclosed. But as a matter of 
principle, uh, you know, uh, regulation should really be in place uh, to ensure the safety uh, and soundness of of this enterprise. Uh, uh, But, you know, overall, I think uh, this certainly has prompted a lot of interest uh, for the official sector to understand what's going on, but also to respond uh, uh, in terms uh, of uh, the payment system. How do we ensure uh, that uh, um, the global payment system will still be able to meet the demand for the digital age? And it, but do you think that Libra could pose a threat to some of these fiat currencies? Well, for weaker uh, currencies, for example, for uh, economies that is still suffer high inflation, I think that uh, uh, that danger is more apparent. Uh, whereas for more mature economies, where you know monetary policy has a lot of credibility, or the uh, you know price levels. Uh, price stability is achieved. I don't see uh, necessarily a very, you know, large challenge or threat from from uh, from Libra. I think that the challenge there is more a financial stability issue, in the sense that whether this um, this uh, whether they are uh, create, you know, suppose it's it's a very large money market fund. And, you know, whether that would distort how the financial industry works, uh, uh, you know, that's, those are the issues that we, you know, one, one needs to be, uh, one needs to be uh, uh, concerned about. Also issues with financial integrity, with, uh, with privacy protection, uh, you know, those issues are very much on the agenda. I don't necessarily see the threat uh, in terms of, uh, um, uh, you know, a new currency that has more credibility, certainly not for countries that, uh, that, have, uh, that have price stability already achieved. And just to go back to that goal of financial inclusion, do you think that Libra could help in that regard? Um, well, I mean, in a way, I've already answered the question. I think in, in some respect, when you, have, when you have a cryptocurrency, that can be easily obtained. It can make payments easier uh, uh, for those non-banked uh, uh, citizens. On the other hand, it really depends on the design of the currency, right? If the currency is very volatile, its value fluctuates. Uh, it doesn't provide a stable uh, 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 store of value. Uh, you know, this, it, uh, you know, then the demand for that particular cryptocurrency will not necessarily high. So we will have to see how, how, this, uh, uh, how, how the proposed uh, uh, cryptocurrency works. So I don't, I don't think you can make a blanket statement whether it helps or uh, um, you know, discourages financial inclusion. Yeah, plus we're not sure if it will launch. So, <laughs> all right. Well, this has been such a great discussion. I really enjoy talking with you both. Where can people learn more about you and the IMF? Oh, um, you know, the IMF web- website has, uh, you know, a huge amount of material for people who are interested in uh, in how the IMF works, what this is about. The work um, I do, you know, I, I, I am a monetary economist. Uh, so I work a lot on um, central banking issues, on financial stability issues. Uh, so I have written papers, and those uh, those are posted 
in various places. So you know, for for, for those uh, who are interested, they can always uh, they can always find my my papers. Yeah, similarly, I think for the work that I'm I'm doing, so I basically um, oversee uh, the legal department's work on AML CFT and also fintech. I just took over fintech. I think as a don't said, you can go to www.imf.org. There, you can really find a lot of uh, you know um, reports and articles, you know, on fintech issues. All right, great. Well, thank you both for coming on Unchained. Thank you. you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dong and Ian and the IMF, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter and a bit newsier, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening. Thank you.